could have a problem. I mean, this might end up being the space you need to go to. Elon was just here. It's probably a fake account, Jam. No, no, it's the one, the real one, uh, the one I follow. <laughs> really? That's crazy. Yeah. What do you say? Elon came in the uh, came in the space. Yeah, yeah, but then he saw you were co-hosting and he left. Obviously, he's trying to learn. He's trying to learn from us. Like Elon, if you need any any kind of instruction, any kind of guidance, he's I'm checking on community notes. Yeah, community notes. Yeah, it's about community notes. He's he's seen your post, Lee, man. Elon, sort your community notes out, boy. Like you know, I ain't gonna shill with you, chill for you like the rest of these guys. When you're wrong, I gotta <laughs> tell you you're wrong, bro. Stop listening to David Sachs. He's misguiding you. He's gonna ruin everything. So funny. Nah, David Sachs is all right. Ignore follow. Welcome to the show, guys. Sorry. Well, Elon definitely came into this space. Wow. <clears throat> Keep not... a lookout, Jam, in case he comes Hi. back. Shooting the mic straight away. I'm not really sure I've what's going on. I've got a question to ask him myself. You yeah, guys are such a mess. Me. If you give Storm a mic, Elon will just leave. Elon, come up, bro. Come up. We've got some questions for you, bro. This is going to be a real space. Ain't none of these other scary spaces where they'll suck up to you. No, he left, he left, he left. Oh, God. He, he Jam, why are you scared of bro? He came up for a few seconds and you were talking, but then he left. And this then is he a ran. live discussion. Are they not live? I posted a picture of this. I was out yesterday and I posted a picture of like beautiful sunshine and stuff. And it's got sensitive content marked on it. When Elon comes back, give him the mic. Let's have a conversation with Hump Jam. Got it, got it. Every post that I make on my PC now comes up with a sensitive content. Okay, I'm not in the right one. Hold on, guys. Hold on for me one second. I am not in the right one, I don't think. Let's try this one. Join this space. There we go. Now we're cooking with bacon grease. Fucking A, Johnson. It's even got music. Sorry about that. Maybe Elon is trolling us. He just tweeted. I'm going to move this over here so I can see your chat. I don't have to look at myself in this. Good afternoon, Susan, Sonia Brown. Welcome to live, Jennifer Wazowski and Heather. Can you hear everything okay? That's loud. Man, I gotta turn that down. That's driving me nuts. Welcome to live, you guys. It's a little different. Normally, we are other things. Hello, and Twitch, hello. It's good to see you. Normally, we're streaming other things, uh, but we're here now. So, hello. Welcome to Rumble. Make sure you smash the Rumble button. This is the Twitter space with RF Ken RF Kennedy Jr. Hold on. I'm having sound issues. That's all right. As long as you guys can hear it. That's all that matters to me. Can you guys hear the music? Here we go. This new WNWO new tech is hit. I know. <laughs> Bring on the new world order. We're still going to live our lives chipless. 
No chips for me. Conservative AF, I missed you guys too. Listen, while we wait, um, hold on, give me one second. I can't even mute this. What's this do? What happens when I click on this? Oh, it just makes that bigger. While we kind of wait, um, I'm going to remove that and turn it down a little bit. Hold on for me one second. This is new. I don't usually do stuff like this. That's louder. While we wait, so this is going to be it. No, we're not on YouTube um, right now with this because there's going to be a lot of conversations about... Um, I'm sure the vaccine thing is going to come up. And even though YouTube came out and they were like, no, we're not going to kick people off for vaccines. Um, and they already did once. They didn't kick me off, but I'm on restriction till July for a video that I posted a couple months ago. Almost immediately right after they said that, they still kicked me off. So we're not on YouTube with this. This is going to be just on Rumble and Twitch today. Um, and then after this, I am taking a hiatus from the show. I'm still going to post the content and the updates and the news on all of the other the platforms, the TikToks and the Instagrams. I'll even post them to shorts here on YouTube or on YouTube. Um, and then anything that's a little bit longer, I can post to Rumble. But I am going to take a hiatus from the weekly show. The reason for that is because I'm going to spend the summer with our kids, uh, my kids, my family. We're going to be camping a lot. We're going to do all kinds of different things. And uh, 2024 is going to be pretty wild. And so I, I, I'm going to take a quick, you know, I'm going to take a break before shit starts to really hit the fan. And then we will, uh, we'll resume probably at the end of the, the, the year. Well, they'd be this fall. So it'll be August, um, into September timeframe. Kids will go back to school and, uh, we'll get fired back up. We'll come back balls of blazing, but we're still going to do the short form content. I'm still going to upload the videos, and we're still going to do all that. I'm just going to take a break from the weekly shows. And that's from Shannon's show too, um, just so I can spend more time with my kiddos. So um, no, no, we're not, we're not banned. We're not banned on YouTube, but YouTube is still really touchy about some of this stuff. YouTube also came out and said that they were no longer going to be taking down videos that talked about election fraud. And so that'll be an interesting concept to, to see if that actually happens or not. I know they came out and they said that they weren't going to ban um, vaccine stuff anymore, but then they did, uh, like two weeks later, I'd posted a video and then they put me on restriction because of it. So we're only going to do this here for now. Um, we'll do the Durham congressional hearing too. That is in, uh, two weeks. We're going to stream that too. That will be on YouTube. I'll do that on all three platforms. Uh, that's just going to be funny to watch. We're going to check in on that, check in on the Durham uh, and if anything else pops up like that, that I feel like maybe we all need to sit down and watch or like I'm going to sit down and watch and I, I like to do with friends, uh, I'll stream it. I'm just I, I don't have the time or the energy now to put together the shows uh, and it takes time, it takes a couple days. So I'm going to do it this way instead for the summer. Then the kids are going to go back to school and we'll go back to have nothing to do. And the next summer, they're all going to be older and they're probably going to want to hang with their friends. So. Um, Heather, the artist says 2024 will be very telling as to whether or not they stick with that. Yeah, we'll see what's happening. We'll see what's going to happen. Uh, the kids have got big plans summer. They want to do lemonade stands and be little entrepreneurs and make tons of money. And so we're going to do a lot of that. We're going to spend a lot of time at the pool. Oh, here we go. Started, um, excited to introduce our, uh, co-hosts here, uh, 
Bobby Kennedy Jr. and Elon. I'll start by introducing uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. I think everyone already knows he's a nephew of President John F. Kennedy. He's the son of Senator and Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy, who was assassinated after winning the California primary in the 1968 presidential election. Before entering presidential politics, uh, RFK Jr. was an environmental <coughs> lawyer and activist in many areas. He was most famous for cleaning up the Hudson River. He was also outspoken on indigenous rights, uh, peace, and civil liberties. He's also the founder of Children's Health Defense, a nonprofit that protects children from toxic chemical assault from pharmaceutical drugs and environmental pollution. So with that, Bobby and Elon, I think we're all excited to hear what you guys have to say. Elon, it's a real pleasure meeting you. And thank you so much for hosting this. Uh, you're, you're most welcome. Um, <clears throat> I think this is this is a great opportunity for the, the, the public to hear directly from you. and. Um, Really looking forward to what you have to say. I, I also just want to thank you for your leadership on the on just breaking this the hold of the censorship. Um, in fact, I, I say one thing that that Twitter was always kind of the last refuge for those of us who are trying to talk about uh, issues that departed from the official orthodoxies that were being censored on the other platforms and the first real effort at censorship happened in February of 2019 when Adam Schiff sent a letter to all to the heads of all the uh, social media sites of Google, Facebook, uh, now Meta, Instagram, YouTube, Pinterest and others and demanding that they start censoring information about vaccines that didn't that was non-compliant with with the official uh, narratives and the only place the only uh, uh, group that resisted Schiff Schiff at that time was head of the intelligence committee so that was kind of the first indicator that the intelligence apparatus had an interest in public health and the only one of the social media sites to resist those uh, those imprecations was uh, was Twitter when when Jack uh, was running things and he for some reason he was able to say no to them when the rest of them weren't. So I'm very very happy. And your arrival at Twitter, Elon, has been uh, I think a breath of fresh air for our country. Uh, you somehow understood, although you're from South Africa, you somehow understood the tradition of free expression and how important that is to American democracy. So I'm very, very grateful to you. You're most welcome. Um, uh, yes, I, I, this, I think it's absolutely essential uh, to have a robust uh, democracy. Uh, we must have free speech. Um, in the absence of that, uh democracy simply cannot function yeah it, it is free speech and the free flow of information is the water it's the sunlight it's the fertilizer it's the soil democracy without it democracy withers and dies there's never been a time in history when we look back and say that the people who are censoring free speech were the good guys they're always the bad guys they're always it's always the first step toward totalitarianism, but also, you know, it's one of the things that the constitutional framers understood that 
totalitarian systems have a huge advantage over a democracy because they're more efficient. Democracy is sloppy. It's slow. It is. Uh, it, it advances two steps and then retreats one step. Uh, it is the product of a lot of debate and which is uh, which is slow moving and laborious. And the only advantage, the big advantage that we have over totalitarian systems, is that the ideas that that mature into policies are first annealed in a furnace of debate. And the best ideas then triumph in this marketplace of ideas, which does not happen in a totalitarian system. And that's one of the things that the, the dynamics that the framers of our constitution understood that we would be able to outcompete totalitarian systems and outlast them because of this, uh, this dynamic that produced policies through through debate and, and through discussion and conversation rather than through dictation. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. Um, the, the, the thing about um, democracies and, and free speech is that it, it's, it's, like, it's like washing your laundry in public. Yes, you see um, things that perhaps, you, you know, there's, there's, there's dirty laundry, but at least you see it, it's not hidden. Um, and uh, it, it's essential to have that debate, uh, even if you disagree strongly with one side of the debate. Uh, the, if you don't allow such debates, the, the, the thing is, I think people who are in favor of censorship really need to understand is that unless people that you don't like can say things that you don't like, it's not free speech. And 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 if you uh, if you start censoring, it's only a matter of time before that censorship is turned upon you. Uh, I mean, the First Amendment was written not for easy speech and likable speech and lovable people. It was it was written for hard times and to protect speech that nobody wants you to say. And I remember in 1977 when the Nazis wanted to uh, march through Skokie, Illinois, which was a Jewish neighborhood, and the liberals of this country, the ACLU, turned out in force to support that right, even though they were appalled and disgusted by what the Nazis were saying and doing. They, everybody agreed that we had to be willing to die for their right to do so. And that was the, that's the whole base of democracy is that we allow people to talk. And one of the things, you know, that, and one of the things that prompted me to run for president is what you were talking about is the, the end of transparency in our country, the government, there's so much going on now that it's done secretively, that where the decision-making is opaque, where there are uh, people who are, uh, who, who are making decisions who are not necessarily elected officials, that the public is fenced out, and so many Americans today feel like the promise of democracy has been a bait and switch and that we're no longer living in a democratic system where we are actually the sovereign of our own destinies, the, the sovereign, the, the deciders of our own fate, that people over whom we have no control, that moneyed interests, that large corporations have taken over this kind of merger of state and corporate power that's happened in Washington, D.C. and the state capitals has not only turned our 
regulatory agencies into predators against the American people. They're supposed to be our protectors, but also that all the decision-making, the real decision-making has been taken from the American public and that, you know, you see so many people. I'm in rural Pennsylvania today and I'm surrounded by by people who feel despair about our country, who are disillusioned, who are struggling with poverty for reasons that they don't understand, but they feel like they no longer are the masters of their own destiny. And I think a lot of that is because it's true. Our government has become an instrument of corporate power and it is not telling, and because of that, it has to lie to us. You know, it, it can't afford to be transparent because if it actually told us what it was up to and why it was making certain decisions, people wouldn't put up with it. So everything has to be cloaked in fear and deception. And I think, you know, Americans, even though they don't understand it, they understand that something very, very wrong is happening to them. Absolutely. The, the, the thing actually I find... Uh, truly bizarre um, and very different from the past is that it's not just um, large corporations and government that are in collusion, which has actually been the case for, for a while. Um, I think it was Eisenhower that, that that warned us about the military-industrial complex, for example, and, and, and he's someone who really knew about it. Um, uh, but the, the thing that I, I find difficult to forgive uh, is that the legacy or traditional media uh, is also uh, almost entirely, with with some exceptions, working uh, in lockstep with the uh, the government and with um, sort of the, with with corporate America, and 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 they it is the, really their obligation to question the government, not not to go along with it and be their mouthpiece in in the United States. This is insane. Yeah, I mean the function of the media traditionally is supposed as the guardians of the First Amendment. They're supposed to speak truth to power. And that was so bad. Propaganda vessels for the powerful, for you know the big, for the military-industrial complex, for the pharmaceutical companies, uh, for and for other large corporations. And, you know, one of the mechanisms by which, which which that media capture has taken place is by through advertising, and particularly in the pharmaceutical realm. In 1997, we changed the law in this country. We, we had always forbidden the use of, of, of the media to sell pharmaceutical products. There was no direct-to-consumer advertising of pharmaceutical products. It was against the law. <clears throat> FDA changed that law in 97, and it, it launched a tsunami of pharmaceutical dollars into the advertising space and gave the pharmaceutical companies control not only of the platform for advertising their products, but also control of content on nightly news. I had this weird meeting with Roger Ailes. Roger Ailes was the founder of Fox News. And I had this very strange relationship with him because I spent three months in a tent with him in East Africa when I was 19 years old. And even if that was before he started Fox News, once he started Fox News, he became kind of this Darth Vader figure for me. But despite the fact that all the things Things he was doing uh, to our country were antithetical to what I believed, and I I kept this this very fond personal friendship with him, and he would allow me on his 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 network, 
and he would require his hosts like Hannity and, and uh, Neil Cavuto and Bill O'Reilly to put me on to talk about environmental issues. I was the only environmentalist during those years who was regularly going on Fox News. And in 2016, I, I had done a documentary on, the, on mercury and vaccines, and I showed it to him. And he was very interested, and he had a family member who he thought had been injured by a vaccine. And, and he said, unfortunately, I can't help you with this. He said, he said that any of his hosts who allowed me on TV to talk about this, that he would be forced to fire them. And he said that 75% of his advertising revenues for the nightly news shows were at that point coming from pharma. He, he told me that on average, there is 22 advertisements on a nightly news show and eight, 17 to 18 of those are typically pharmaceutical ads. And he said, if, if any of his hosts allowed me onto their show without checking with him, he would be forced to fire them. And if he didn't, he would get a call from Rupert, but he, he said from Rupert within 10 minutes. And of course he meant Rupert Murdoch, who is the owner of Fox News. And that kind of gave me insight to, you know, why uh, nobody on TV wanted to talk about these things. Because uh, as I said, the pharmaceutical industry not only is dictating, is, is using those shows as a platform to advertise its product, but there's only two countries in the world that allow direct-to-consumer advertising. One is New Zealand. The other is the United States. And it's largely as a result of that, we take three times the pharmaceutical drugs of any other Western nation. We have the and and we have the worst health outcomes. We pay more for healthcare than any other nation. And we're I think we're 79th in the world. We're behind I think Mongolia and Cuba and Costa Rica and our health outcomes. And um, and pharmaceutical drugs are now the third leading cause of death in our country after cancer and, and heart disease. And it's not just pharmaceutical companies. I was watching the other day, Good Morning America, and there was an advertisement, I think it was by General Dynamics on Good Morning America. There's nobody in the audience of Good Morning America who is buying killer drones. And so why is General Dynamics advertising on Good Morning America. Well, of course, they're doing those advertisements because they want to dic the, dictate the content. They want to be able to have an editorial control over the kind of Overton window that, that, that Good Morning America is, is permitted, uh, within which uh, discussions on Good Morning America are permitted. So they want to make sure that we're that Americans are enthusiastic about our wars and uh, and about you know our, our belligerent national policies, so that they can continue selling weapons. And unfortunately, those are the um, those are the forces that are dictating a lot of what of the narrative, the official narrative that we hear from network TV and from the corporate-owned television. Yeah, um, yeah. In, in fact. Um... Uh, you, you know, uh, Twitter um, has has seen uh, extreme pressure from advertisers, um, as uh, and, and and you know has has uh, in, at least in the West seen um, a advertising boycott from from a lot of companies. I would like to 
for sure thank both those companies that have stuck with us um, uh, like Apple and uh, Disney and many others um, but uh, but we have in um, you know, it, it for uh, North America and Europe seen um, uh, roughly uh, half of our advertising uh, disappear overnight simply because we insist on free speech so what you're talking about I think the public does not realize the magnitude of the pressure, um, uh, extreme financial pressure that is placed upon uh, organizations uh, to, to toe the line uh, by advertisers. And I think this is uh, a fundamental corruption of democracy and the public should be absolutely outraged by this. Um, and uh, and, and uh, something's gotta be done about it. It's, it's insane. Yeah. Um, they're, they're literally trying to drive uh, uh, Twitter bankrupt. Yeah, well, you know, I, I was really curious um, about, you know, about your decision to release the Twitter files, because that, I mean, if I had been your attorney, you know, and I wouldn't be because I'm not a corporate attorney, but I can't imagine that any attorney for Twitter told you that that was a good idea. And there was a time, you know, we were suing the, um, the social media companies for the censorship. And when we heard that you were taking over Twitter, our attorneys came to us and said, you know, uh, Elon Musk seems very, very sympathetic to free his speech. Maybe we should tell him that we're about to sue them all, but that we'll drop Twitter from the lawsuit if he releases the, you know, the, the records of his communications with the White House. Because, and for people who don't understand this, in the audience, companies like Twitter are regarded as essentially publishing platforms. And if you're a publisher, you can you can uh, print anything you want, and you can refuse to print anything you want. The government doesn't control that, and nobody else does. If you're the New York Times, you have an absolute right not to print an editorial by Robert Kennedy. No, that's not censorship. Censorship is when the government tells you to do it. So. Twitter, um, so what, what we could not sue Instagram for deplatforming me. But if we could prove that the government pressured Mark Zuckerberg to have Instagram deplatform me, then, then the First Amendment is implicated and it becomes illegal under American law. We had that proof for some of the companies, but it really, it was right on the borderline of whether judges would accept it or not. And it would have been very, very valuable to us at that time to have the kind of information that was released in the Twitter files. But it, it would be, I at that time told my attorneys, I don't think Elon would do that because his attorneys are gonna tell him it would be insane because it would subject Twitter to, uh, to a litigation, to a liability risk. And I was so surprised and, and delighted when you did that on your own. And, uh, you know, clearly you've been portrayed as somebody who's kind of this, uh, this sinister agenda. But you're doing step after step that is not in your self-interest and that is clearly designed to protect freedom of speech and is designed for, you know, is coming out of some deeper place than financial self-interest for you. And I just want to tell you how much I admire you for that, Elon, and how grateful I am on behalf of my country 
you would come here from another country and be the key instrument for re for for rescuing American democracy and freedom of speech during a time of you know when a lot of people were were turning their backs on our constitution. Um. <clears throat> Yeah, it's uh, it definitely um, has been extremely difficult. Um, if 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 we if if Twitter simply towed the line and did everything that that the you know, advertisers and 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 especially the advertise the sort of various nonprofits that pressure the advertisers um, and uh, you know the whole sort of ESG DEI movement, which is uh, um, sort of having a, a much bigger effect on the actions of, of corporations and people realize i mean if if, if we just simply uh code the line like everyone else um uh, you know we, we would have um it's it's, it's it's billions of dollars a year in, in difference basically our, our our revenue is cut in half uh, uh because we didn't tow the line so it just it, it the magnitude of this uh, is uh extreme and and um and it's uh, frankly a struggle uh, uh, for uh, Twitter to uh, break even. Uh, we're hoping to break even, but, but we're not there yet. And um, uh, but but I don't care how much it costs or what it takes. Uh, if, if if we lose free speech, we lose we lose democracy. If we lose democracy. America falls. America falls. I don't know what happens to the world, but it's not a good thing. I mean, I'd love to hear any kind of details about did, did your did you talk to attorneys before you before you release the twitter files did you talk to anybody else who told you you must be out of your mind to be doing this oh yeah absolutely everyone i i, I mean every lawyer advised against it and said it was insane and that um would get in huge trouble and uh i would be sued uh to hell and gone and um it would be a massive disaster i uh yeah I don't care. Um, like I don't care. Um, the the I mean I just you know it's it's easy for people to take for granted uh, the system we have here in the United States, um, but uh, it it really doesn't exist anywhere else. Um, you know, uh, not even in, in you know Canada. I'm half Canadian, and, and you, you don't have the free speech uh, rights in Canada that you have in the United States. Um, you know, perhaps a, a new government in Canada at some point will enact those rights because it's incredibly important. Um, but uh, you know, I, I, I think if if we if we don't protect free speech at all costs, um, we, we don't have a functioning democracy. If we don't have a functioning democracy, nothing else matters. Let, let me ask you another question: What is it in your background that you know that you think? gave you such firm convictions where you'd be you'd be willing to take this huge massive unspeakable economic hit uh on behalf of a principle for a country in which you weren't even born well i, I should say i do i do very much consider myself an american uh, so um What do you think it was in your in your background and your childhood or whatever? Were there any time? Was there something that you know? Was it a civics lesson? Was it a professor? Was it? Huh. 
<laughs> I, I, well, I, I, I love studying history, uh, history of civilizations, history of, of, of all kinds. Uh, and um, while, of course, the United States has made mistakes and, and it is not perfect and it has at times done things that are wrong, um, I am of, of the firm belief that the United States has been the, the, the greatest force for benevolence uh, in world history. And, um, and this is, again, not to excuse mistakes or, or bad things, and, um, but that, that is, I, I think, the evidence for the United States being, being a benevolent force in the world is uh, overwhelming. Um, you look at things like, um, you know, the Marshall Plan after World War II, um, you know, at, at the end of World War II, the United States um, had um, overwhelming uh, military might, had the nuclear bomb. And the United States could have taken over the world. It could have acquired whatever countries it wanted. Um, and yet it, it didn't do any of that. In fact, it gave uh, money to, to, the, uh, to, to the countries that had, that had been fighting. Um, what, I, I'm not sure if that has ever happened in history. It, 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 it helped rebuild, the United States helped rebuild Germany and Japan, um, helped rebuild Japan even after things like Pearl Harbor. I mean, is, this is, I, I, one has to really, I, I, maybe this, this has happened before in history, but I'm not aware of it. And, and so, you know, so I, I, I'm, I, I'm very, I'm very, in favor of America, but the, again, it's not to say that we can't do better, or, or you know, we need to. We, we we do want to do better, and we want to maintain that. Um, uh, but um, anyway, so I'm 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 a huge fan of it, and I, I don't you know I also want to point out I you know I I don't have uh, you know any homes outside of the United States. I do not. I, carry any other, any other passport, and I, I will live and die here. Well, that's very, very moving and very, very admirable. And thank you for, you know, thank you for your service and commitment to our country, Elon. And I, um, you know, I, I've been watching you and watching the way that you've been mischaracterized by the press, mischaracterized by people in my party. Uh, the Democratic Party, um, as somebody who is a threat to democracy, when everything that you have done has indicated a, um, a you know, you're just an incredible commitment. Um, you know, during the revolution, there were, we lost between 25,000 and 70,000 people during the revolution who died to give us the, our constitution. And those are people also put their livelihoods on the line. They put their property on the line. They put their financial status and their social status on the line. Um, and in a way that, you know, for principles. And, uh, you know, I've watched you do the same thing. And you've been such an example to other Americans of how we ought to be behaving, even if it costs us a lot of money. And even if the risks don't seem worth, the personal risks don't seem worth it, um, you've done that and you've done it without 
you know, having any kind of reputational benefit from it. You've been, you've been vilified for it. Uh, so I, you know, I want to thank you there. I do want to ask you a question um, about, because I, you know, I really started admiring you when I saw an interview that you did years ago, where you said that, um, that you, you said that we should be terrified of AI, that you said, I think I, I quote you this, you said, you said first it's going to take our jobs and then it's going to kill us. And um, so, you know, and that, that, that felt that felt like real honesty to me from somebody who is at the center of the tech industry and even, you know, working on AI stuff. And then I see what you're doing with Neuralink. And it seems to me that that is a technology that could potentially be really horrifically de uh, uh, denigrating to, to democracy and human freedoms if it's taking the wrong direction. So what are your thoughts about that? Uh, well, with, with Neuralink, um, first of all, it's uh, important to appreciate Neuralink, um, which for those who aren't aware of it, is Neuralink is developed, developing uh, brain-to-computer interfaces uh, to um, uh, allow direct communication with the brain. Um, it, it, the Neuralink will progress very slowly because um, anytime you have a, a device implanted in a human, uh, the, the uh, FDA requirements, I think, uh, correct correctly, are uh, extremely uh, difficult, um, and you have to par par pass many hurdles um, to have to have that work. the The first applications that we're talking about are simply enabling someone who um, is a quadriplegic or tetraplegic, someone who has, has lost a connection from their brain to their body, uh, to be able to communicate. Um, so you can imagine, um, say, if Stephen Hawking was able to communicate um, as well as someone with a fully functional body, um, that would be incredible. Um, so the, 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 for many years, the, the applications simply be to enable functionality that people have lost due to uh, spinal or brain injuries. Um, uh, long term, um, I, I think it has a hopefully uh, some chance of mitigating um, the uh, artificial intelligence uh, existential risk by um, enabling a closer symbiosis of AI and, and humans. And, and I, I certainly agree that this is not without risk. Um, and, um, you know, it's something we need to be very, very careful with how it's done. But, but I just want, do want to emphasize, it's, it's not going to happen suddenly. It'll happen very slowly. And at least looking at the advancement of artificial intelligence, the, I, I think we will probably have digital superintelligence uh, before uh, Neuralink uh, is, is sufficiently advanced to uh, have high bandwidth communication between um your sort of cortex and the uh, and the sort of the AI extension of yourself, um, but but no no question we need to be extremely careful and we will be extremely careful and it will, it will move slowly. So you'll, you'll you'll definitely see it coming and people have an, have an opportunity to object and raise raise concerns and issues. And with Neuralink, we're also trying to be extremely open book and and uh, uh, you know so there's nothing hidden and and we, we are like I said uh, or, uh, ordered it extensively by. 
uh, the FDA. Uh, so um, now w with respect to the, to um, artificial intelligence or uh, as, um, or digital superintelligence, like there's, there's levels of artificial intelligence that, that are not dangerous. Like I, I don't think your, your self-driving cars are, are really dangerous um, or, you know, having uh, better autocorrect is, is dangerous, but uh, it's when you have some deep intelligence that is uh, far smarter than the smartest human, that's where things could uh, get dangerous. <laughs> no, I, I, that, I don't want to go too far down the AI rabbit hole because that, 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 that's a big one. But, um, but, but, it, but I, I, it's not that I think that digital superintelligence or AI, AGI is um, de definitely a bad thing. I just think it is, it's a very powerful technology and that there is, there's certainly risk of it being um, a bad thing and, and, and acting in uh, a matter contrary to the interests of humanity um, and that we need to be cognizant of those of that risk and we need to just be very careful um, and thorough and and do our best to ensure that it is beneficial rather than harmful yeah um yeah, I mean, I, 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 you know, if I do get in the White House, I think that's one of the things that I need to pay a lot of attention to is how do we regulate this and how do we bring in the people who are developing it and, you know, immediately uh, from all over the world and figure out a way to regulate it. So, um, you know, so that it doesn't, it doesn't end up killing us all or enslaving us or whatever the heck it's going to do. But even you know, yeah. even the even self-driving cars. Um, I think something like forty percent of the jobs in America are from uh, are driving jobs or involve driving. And if you get rid of those jobs, like even Uber jobs, which are an entry level, um, which we could do in the next decade or not. I mean, it, it's going to be it's going to be a really difficult challenge for our country to figure out. Um, you know what uh what to do with all these and, I, and I'm, I'm using a very bad characterization but you know surplus humans because that's what a lot of people are going to feel like yeah so <clears throat> i do think there is an avenue for say um uber drivers or, or drivers in general in, in that there'll, there'll still be a need to to manage um and, and take care of, of uh, a bunch of self-driving cars, almost like a like a shepherd tending their flock. Um, and so I think it, it actually could end, end up being a good thing, in that uh, you know it's, instead of driving one car, you could actually manage uh, a sort of a fleet of ten cars. And and I I, I think that's good. I'm, I'm not suggesting that that it will not result in disruption or changing of jobs. <coughs> I'm just saying that. Self-driving is, um, it, it, I don't think, is an existential risk to, to civilization, um, and um, and and I, I like so I think the it, I think I think it will be, I think, in my opinion, a significant net benefit. But I do believe that we should be critiqued. We should be asked these questions, um, and we and and um, I mean, in, in general, I, I aspire I aspire to take the set of actions that maximize. The probability that the future will be good for humanity um that is not to say that 
uh, I do not make mistakes. Uh, obviously, I, I do. Um, but that is at least uh, the the intention. Um, and um, but, but as I said, I think it's good to have critique. It's good to be questioned. Um, it's good to be pushed on these issues. And, and it's very important for companies to be uh, as, as open book as possible. Um, but, but, but actually, perhaps, uh, uh, I, mean, we're, we're, I think these are, these are really interesting topics for, for people, but I think uh, a lot of the public would, would love to hear about your, your presidential run. Well, I would love to talk about it. Do we have any questions? Well, we, we have a bunch of questions. Um, we can pull in, we have a few people we can pull in, and then we can pull in more as well. Um, so Tulsi Gabbard's here, Balaji's here, Michael Schellenberger's here, Omid's here. Um, before we leave the censorship topic, um, you know, Bobby, one thing you mentioned that you went over really quickly was that you were just reinstated to your Instagram account and that you've been locked out for two years. And I guess they had to reinstate you because there's a law requiring it when someone runs for president. So apparently the only way to get free speech in this country is to run for president. <laughs> uh, but, but the crazy thing is that people on your campaign were frozen out of their accounts. Apparently anyone who signed up with the Team Kennedy email domain yeah. uh, was frozen. I guess they just got reinstated. Yeah. So I guess I just want to hear about that. And then following up on what Elon said about the intense pressure that Twitter is under um, from advertising boycotts, I want to bring in Schellenberger, who was one of the key authors on the Twitter files and has done a lot of work on what he calls um, the censorship industrial complex. So it'd be great to hear from him on how this whole thing gets organized, because I don't think people understand that these pressure tactics are highly organized. So I guess, Bobby, to you first, and then let's bring in Schellenberger. Yeah, so I was uh, evicted from... Instagram, uh, I think in the in the summer of maybe or spring of 20, uh, 2021, I was evicted, and I had about I had uh, I had at, at the time the day I was convicted, I had about, or evicted, I, I had about seven hundred seventy thousand dollars, but I had been up to nine hundred thousand, and they would cut them back whenever I hit nine hundred thousand. They would cut them back to eight hundred thousand or 700,000. So I was losing followers the whole time. And they said it was because I was uh, I was promoting mis misinformation, but the term misinformation had nothing to do with, as we now know from the Twitter files and from the emails uh, that Meadow, you know, at that time Facebook, that we've recovered from Facebook. And it had nothing to do with factual accuracy or inaccuracy. It was simply a euphemism for any statement that departed from the government orthodoxies and government proclamations would be characterized misinformation. And there is nothing on my Twitter uh, feed that was factually inaccurate. Everything that we put up there, that I put up there, was cited and sourced to peer-reviewed publications or government databases. There's nothing on there that was that anybody's ever been able to point to, including Facebook. When I appealed, I tried to appeal, and I, we did a lengthy memo showing that I had never put up a single uh, factual error in that, in, you know, in my, my post. Um, 
but they then they wouldn't let, allow me to appeal. They had appeal, an appeal system, but they would not allow me to enter that system. And I, I feel confident I would have won because the people that they actually selected as judges were a really good group of people. They were law professors from, mainly law professors from universities around the world. And many of them were people I was acquainted with. And, you know, I was a law professor at that time. And I'm confident I would have gotten a fair hearing from them. So they, they wouldn't let me even into the appeals process. And then as you point out, in the last, since I've declared for the presidency, now we have about 50 people working for the campaign. And each of those people has a had a you know a, a Instagram handle which said, for example, my daughter-in-law Amaryllis at teamkennedy.com. And they wanted to use that handle on their Twitter, on their um, their Instagram accounts. And in the Instagram would send them when they, they attempted to register, Instagram would send them a flag saying, You've been suspended for 180 days. And so none of them were allowed on. And of course, that's illegal under the, you know, it's, it's called Section 413 of the Code of Federal Regulations, which regulates uh, uh, speech. It protects speech during presidential and other federal election campaigns. And um, so, but I think, I think that Meta, and I don't want to, um, you know, I don't want to be pointing the finger at Meta right now because I think it's time for healing in this country. And I, I'm happy that I've been reinstated and they, they gave me back all my old posts and they gave me back all my old followers, which I didn't even know if they existed anymore. Um, so I'm very, very happy with that. And the people that we've been working with at Meta have been, you know, recently have been very, very cooperative and they're now letting our people register. And I think it is, you know, not everybody had the foresight of Elon Musk and Jack Dorsey of saying, okay, this was really wrong and we're not going to put up with it, even if it causes billions of dollars. Um, there, you know, a lot of Americans were living in fear and they were doing things that they believed were were proper and right at the time. And I think it's time that we, you know, that we that we focus on healing and bridging the divide. So I don't want to I want to really thank Meta for reinstating me. And I hope this is, can, can be the I hope we learn something from that process and that we can go forward and make sure that nothing like this ever happens in the United States of America again. Michael, do you want to jump in here? This might be a good time to talk about what you've learned. For, for what it's worth, you know, I don't think. Yeah, that sounds great. Can you that, hear me yeah, okay, I David? Yeah, I mean, for what it's worth, I don't think that Meta as a company wants to be censoring people. I just think that they're under incredible pressure and didn't stand up to that pressure. But Michael, can, can you speak to that and what you found? I think we lost them, did we? Hello? Michael? We had you a second ago. Well, sure, I'd be happy to. And can you hear me okay, David? Yes. Yeah, we can hear <laughs> We can't hear you. Good. Well, uh, thanks so much for having me, guys. And uh, Mr. Kennedy, it's a real honor and a privilege to hear you speak. Uh, we, we don't agree on everything, but you're... Oh, sorry, guys. Can you hear me okay? 
We could. You you kind of cut well, it. We lost you for a second. Hear me now. Great. Well, first, thank you so much, Mr. Kennedy. Uh, uh, really appreciate your strong remarks. Can you guys hear me now? Yeah, we can hear you. Okay. <laughs> Not anymore. You, you muted yourself. All right, Michael, maybe we'll go back to you. Oh, there you are. David, can you hear me now? Yeah, we can hear you. Great, great. Well, well, first, thanks so much, uh, Mr. Kennedy. It's a real privilege and pleasure to hear you speak so eloquently on support amendment. Just to build on um, the Twitter is under from government. And Twitter is clear platform transparent about the the censorship demand. I, I'm curious if you would support a call that many of us have made that there should be a mandatory requirement by both government officials and by social media platforms to be transparent about the censorship decisions that they're making, because so much of the problem occurs when the censorship is happening behind closed doors and there's no chance to appeal. On the other hand, it's very hard to, to regulate social media companies by the government since that would infringe on the First Amendment. So I'm curious if you've thought about the need for requiring transparency by everybody involved, whether it's governments or social media companies or even advertisers who are demanding that certain content be censored uh, at their behest. Yeah, and actually, Michael, I think that's a, you know, really good solution. And if, if I'm elected, I'm going to call the heads of all of the social media companies into the Oval Office to, and, and have a, a, a conference and not walk out until we have a fit way figured out how to make this work and make it consistent with democracy. And I um, I think you're right. And I think David Sachs was right when he said that these companies do not want to be censoring us. They're, they're coming under tremendous pressure from their advertisers and from, you know, very, very powerful government entities to participate in the censorship. And we don't even have an idea about uh, all of the different uh, forms of pressure that they're coming on to, that they're coming, because the government, of course, has big contracts with these companies that are existential. And, uh, you know, we, we just don't, we, that's all not transparent. And I think the companies, if they, if they function more as common carriers, uh, and I'm not saying being declared common carriers, which is kind of the ultimate sanction, um, that if they if they continue to you know censor that would be something that you would consider. But I think if they functioned as you say, almost like common carriers, where all the decision making was transparent, and where people felt like they had a right to see the algorithms and to understand the algorithms that were being used to uh, to censor speech and to make recommendations, etc. I think that that's a really elegant solution about how to solve these issues. You know, there there's some speech. I'm I'm pretty much a free speech absolutist, and I think the remedy for misinformation is is more is information. It's information. 
and the red and the uh, and the remedy for bad speech is more speech. It's never censorship. Censorship is by far the worst solution. There are forms of speech that are not protected. You know, inciting violence is not protected. Uh, pedophilia and, and you know solicitations like that are not protected speech, and you can censor those, but. If it's protected speech, um, I don't think it should be censored, but I think in, in any case, we should understand the logic, the algorithms and the methodologies, and we should all have access to those so that are, you know, that's that's key because these, these institutions are now the public square. And, you know, they are the place where speech takes place that you can talk to other Americans and, figure out a way to integrate them into our democratic values system. Well, that's, that's really wonderful to hear. Thank you so much for that. It's a strong, it's a very strong endorsement of the transparency, which is, I think, something that brings together people on the left and the right. Uh, we're going to, we, we solve our problems with more speech, not less. And I think that's what the transparency, uh, mandatory transparency by everybody who's demanding censorship uh, that's what that would give us. So thank you very much. I appreciate that. Let me pull in Omid Malik, who I think has done uh, a bunch of work in the on the corporate side on on sort of boycotts and pressure. Uh, Omid, do you have a question or comment? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, you know, Robert, you've spoken eloquently on regulatory capture, whether it's the CDC, the FDA, or the EPA, or even NIH, I mean, how is it that Tony Fauci has over $10 million available to him, even though he's been a bureaucrat for 50 years? These are questions that I hope an intrepid reporter would look into. But I want to just flip it on its head, uh, which is to say, what about corporate capture? Uh, the fact that elements within the federal government are actually adversely affecting our economy so that, uh, as we've touched on here around speech, but it's even worse than that. I mean, the CIA, the FBI uh, affecting our ability to communicate with one another through these big tech companies that are being pressured by them. But even uh, as you're very passionate about using OSHA unconstitutionally to try to force employees around this country for a period to take a shot that many did not want to do and making them choose between that and putting food on the table. So the two part question is one, how do we prevent our bill of rights from being violated by private actors when the government uses them to do their dirty work. I'm not just talking about censorship here. I'm actually talking about the deprivation of economic liberty. And then secondly, is how do we get wages up? And is that then I want to ask you about that specifically. Can you get wages up finally in this country by actually having a border and restricting immigration? Thank you. Yeah, I mean, let's, uh, let me just address that second issue first, which is um, yeah, we need to seal our border. The, the function, it, you know, it, it is a key existential function for every nation in the world to be able to control immigration at its borders. And you know, having millions of people or hundreds of thousands, in, in this case, millions of people flowing across the border is, is not something any nation uh, can or should put up with. And you know, worst of all, it's created a humanitarian crisis at the border. The the notion that we have an open border is now a gospel around the world so that people are flying in from all over the world, from Europe, from China, from Asia, taking full planes to Ecuador. And then there's a, you know, there's a, a, and, and being assisted 
um, by nonprofit groups and by government groups to actually um, make their way to the United States border in buses and uh, and that needs to be shut down. And one of the ways that we do, and a lot of the Latin American and Central American immigration is the direct result of, of bad U.S. policies in the South, uh, austerity programs, the war on drugs, the funding of death squads, uh, the installation uh, and support of juntas, military dictatorships, and, and genocides in those countries that have been happening for decades. And we need to address those issues. Um, but you know, above all, we need to see seal the border. I'm actually going to the border tonight. Um, I will. I'm, I'm crossing the border. I think around three o'clock in the morning uh, into Mexico, and I'll be talking with people on both sides of the border and talking to the stakeholders. Uh, and over the next three days, be meeting with people from the border patrol and elsewhere to try to formulate policies. Uh, that will seal the border permanently. And the, you know, the, the, uh, the flow of, uh, we have people in this country who are poverty stricken and who don't have access to, because of the, uh, the, uh, the paucity of uh, public assistance, don't even have access to public assistance. And, you know, we need to be protecting the people in, in this country and our urban populations, rural populations, 57% of Americans could not put their hand on a thousand dollars. If there's an emergency, we don't have the capacity to support uh, a, a, a lot of new immigrants, this huge flood of new immigrants that's coming into our cities and stressing the school systems, stressing the the social service systems for people who are already, for Americans who are already struggling, it needs to be turned off. And that's what I will do as president. I will, I am going to imperviously make that border impervious. And, you know, there's other countries that have this issue. Israel has this issue with African populations and using a, a, a variety of different te- technologies at their border uh, some fencing, but mainly technological surveillance, they've been able to shut it down. And uh, we need to be doing the same thing. And as president, I will do that. I will also open up legal immigration so that the the immigration that we do need that's going to be beneficial to our country and economy will continue. But we cannot have uncontrolled immigration at the border. In terms of the um, the role of you know these agencies in, uh, in in compelling behavior from U.S. corporation it is it is appalling and it and as soon as I get into office I'm going to issue an executive order forbidding the, uh, the 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 federal agencies whether it's NIH whether it's the CIA the FBI. Uh, from participating in any efforts to censor speech by the American public or to compel other behavior from the American public that is not legally required. And that's what we saw during the pandemic. We saw it, you know, in the vaccine mandates and we saw it in the, the censorship of speech. And I will forbid that and make sure that it is that it does not happen, at least during my term in office. Uh, I, immediately, the first week I'm in office, I will sign that executive order. 
Thank you. And uh, thank you, Milan and David, for hosting this. I also will close by saying it is somewhat ironic that the Democratic Party is not permitting uh, democracy to occur within their own party and giving a platform to Robert to at least debate Joe Biden. Well, that, that, that's an interesting point. Um, let me pull Tulsi into the conversation here. Um, Tulsi is former Democratic congresswoman, who I believe is now an, an independent. I want to get, I actually have a question for both of you guys about the evolution of the Democratic Party. Uh, Bobby, the Democratic Party of your father was the party of peace over war, the party of free speech over censorship, the party of civil liberties over the surveillance state. And today you're perhaps the only prominent Democrat who is taking that sort of dissenting side on those issues. Uh, Tulsi, I think you feel the same on on those issues too. I I guess my question is, what happened to the Democratic Party? And to be sure, many of these afflictions are bipartisan, but there used to be a very conspicuous wing in the Democratic Party to oppose these things. And it seems like there isn't anymore. So I guess my question for both of you is what happened and can it be fixed? I mean, I'll just answer briefly and then I'd love to hear Tulsi's answer. Um, You know, I watched this happen in the Democratic Party. I watched some of this happen. I mean, I think the Democratic Party became the party of war. I, I attribute that directly to President Biden because I, you know, President Biden is always, although I've always liked him, the one part of him that I did not like is that he's always been a very, very, in favor, very bellicose, pugnacious and aggressive uh, foreign policy. And he believes that, uh, that, you know, violence is a legitimate political tool for achieving America's objectives abroad. And that in many cases, it is the uh, it's the first and most prominent tool that the federal government used during the Iraq war. When my uncle was fighting against that war, Joe Biden and the Democratic Party, more than any other senator, was the man who was promoting that war. And I think that's one of the reasons he got the support of the neocons and you know all of these the, the neocons for people who don't know what the neocons are the neocons were called neoconservatives uh, but they were a group of people who had departed from both republican and democratic uh, parties in the after the the defeat of the soviet after that the collapse of the berlin wall and the um and the collapse of the soviet union uh, there were a group of people who who uh, prominent intellectuals who took the position that America had won the Cold War and that as victors we should enjoy the spoils and they published a, uh, a, a plan called a project for a new American century uh, that essentially argued that America should use its military domination its military superiority now as the only superpower to impose an American hegemony and American control, to use violence to impose American control of all the countries in the world. And um, and that group, I think 22 of those leaders ended up in the State Department and White House during the George W. Bush's administration. They orchestrated the war. They had a plan for seven wars that we would fight very quickly in order to defeat uh, all of our uh, our uh, non-compliant countries in the Mideast, beginning with Iraq. And uh, 
and they would they launched the first preemptive war in American history, a war against the country that never did anything to our country. As I've pointed out, there was eight trillion dollars that that war cost us. That war and its aftermath in Libya and uh, and Syria and Yemen and uh, and uh, and Afghanistan and Pakistan. It cost us eight trillion dollars. And we got nothing. Iraq ended up worse in a worse place than we found it. We killed more Iraqis than Saddam Hussein. We killed almost a million Iraqis. We pushed Iran, Iraq into becoming a proxy to Iran, which was the foreign policy outcome that we have been trying to avoid for 40 years. We created ISIS. We drove 2 million refugees into Europe which destabilized all the democracies in Europe probably for two generations and ended up with Brexit. That's what we got for the $8 trillion. And as a result of that cataclysm, politically in the United States, it became untenable to be a neocon. They were in disgrace. They were exiled from all political parties. But somehow they got back into the Biden White House. And people like Victoria Newland, whose, whose husband Robert Kagan was the the uh, author of the project for the newest American century, um, ended up running foreign policy. Avril Haines uh, and uh, Anthony Blinken ended up running this very belligerent foreign policy that we're now dealing with. On the on the medical side, you know, I watched what happened. Uh, initially, pharmaceutical companies were on the side of the Republican Party, and Democrats—they were, um, you know—they were they were regarded with, with kind of contempt by Democrats as a as the most corrupt industry in the country. They paid the four companies that that manufacture all American vaccines: Sanofi, Merck, uh, Glaxo, and Pfizer. Paid over the past decade, $35 billion in criminal penalties, more than any other industry. They've paid the biggest criminal penalties in American history. They are serial felons, these companies. They keep doing the same play over and over. And they were not well regarded in the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party has always had a problem, is it cannot accept corporate dollars in good conscience. So the Republicans always had a lot of money. The only people the Democrats could uh, could could maintain their purity and collect collect money from would be trial lawyers and uh, and labor unions. But the labor unions declined precipitously. So they're now they went from about fifty percent to ten percent of the American workforce. And so all they, we were left with was trial lawyers. And then when President Obama was trying to get Obamacare. Passed, he shook a, shook a golden handshake with the devil with the pharmaceutical companies. He could not get it. The pharma has more lobbyists on Capitol Hill than uh, than Congress than all the congressmen, senators, Supreme Court justices combined. They give more to lobbying twice what the next biggest industry, more than any other industry. And President Obama, they could have deadlocked Obamacare forever. So Obama needed to placate them, and the way that he did it was by making this terrible deal where the federal government could not bargain over the price of pharmaceutical products and Medicare and Obamacare. So Obamacare was going to be big, create this flood of money to the pharmaceutical industry to buy their products for free. 
for the, for the patients for free, but but we could not bargain like you can in Canada and every other nation. You couldn't bargain with them, so they could charge anything they wanted, and that sealed the deal. And all of a sudden, pharma was on the side of Obamacare, and it became permissible morally for Democrats to accept money from pharma. And the, within a, within a year. Democrats were getting more money from pharma than Republicans. And then and and so that put them on the side of the, you know, pro-vaccine side. They were kind of we kind of divided evenly. And then in 2016, President Trump ran and three times during his presidential campaign, he made the statement that he thought that vaccines were causing autism. And that created this that that issue then became part of the culture war. It became part of the cultural divide. Democrats put that issue into the same anti-science dumpster as President Trump's climate denial. And it became now a badge of your party, of, of your tribe. And if you, if you ask questions about vaccines, you were a Trump Republican. And if you uh, if you had a just a religious belief in their efficacy and safety that could not be questioned, you were a Democrat. And so I watched that all happen, all that play out, and watched the Democrats slowly become these pro corporate, pro war, pro censorship republic. Uh, you know what what had once been Republicans, and the Republicans then became anti censorship pro-civil liberties, anti-war, and uh, and there's been this tremendous realignment. And I talked more than I wanted to because I really want to hear from Tulsi and, and hear her take on it. Thanks, thanks, Bobby, and, and thanks for the question, David. Uh, so much of what you said is, is what drove me to leave the Democratic Party. Um, you know, I, I wasn't born into a family of Democrats. My parents, frankly, were pretty independent-minded people, and so when I first ran for the state house, a seat in the state house of representatives in Hawaii 20 years ago, um, I had to decide, you know, which, which party I wanted to join. And as I, as I made that decision, I was inspired by leaders within the democratic party, frankly, Bobby, people like your father and your uncle, people like Martin Luther King Jr., uh, democratic leaders in Hawaii who had, uh, gone to the mat for, uh, the, the plantation workers who were, people from Hawaii, people from across Asia, people, immigrants from around the world. It was Democratic leaders who came in and fought for their, fought for their rights um, to be able to be treated, frankly, like human beings uh, and, and, and uh, be set free from the oppressive uh, landowners that were Republican uh, in, in Hawaii at that time. And so the, the ideals of you know, freedom and civil liberties and a big tent inclusive Democratic Party that welcomed people from all backgrounds and, you know, different ideas uh, was really attractive to me and, and, and was why I joined the Democratic Party. But fast forward to where we are today, uh, as you said, Bobby, I mean, today's Democratic Party is a party that is, is under the complete control of this uh, elitist cabal of warmongers. Um, not only is it being led by warmongers, but we have a situation now where, as we saw last fall, where the Congressional Progressive Caucus, uh, you know, they had they had the audacity to release a public letter to President Biden very gently 
very, very gently and with a lot of flowery words calling for diplomacy and for him to lead a diplomatic effort to end uh, the war between Russia and Ukraine. And within 24 hours, they retracted the letter and, and essentially were cowering in the corner. Uh, you know, we, we can imagine the kind of pressure that they were under to do that and, and the kind of public criticism that they received for daring to call for peace. Uh, so, so the voices for peace within the Democratic Party have been silenced. Uh, rather than this big tent, inclusive Democratic Party, we now have party leaders who are focusing their efforts on dividing us, on racializing every issue, using identity politics to, uh, you know, gain a few political points uh, and votes, uh, undermining fundamental freedoms, freedom of speech, advocating censorship, not only advocating for it, but trying to create government entities in order to shut us up, uh, weaponizing the national security state to go after political opponents. Uh, the, 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 the principles and ideals that the Democratic Party stands for today are directly counter to those that are fundamental and foundational to this country. Uh, and now we're at a point where President Biden has most dangerously uh, dragged us essentially to, to the brink of nuclear war. And, and that's where, Bobby, I'd love to ask you a question uh, in, this, um, in this realm, uh, in, in this vein of, of foreign policy, given the realities that we are facing Given, uh, you know, we're increasingly hearing a lot of politicians, Republicans and Democrats, frankly, and including President Biden, who are actively and aggressively calling for a complete decoupling of uh, the United States and China's economies. Uh, and the Biden administration is is actively and moving forward quickly in this direction. Um, Elon, you you recently talked about how the United States and China's interests are intertwined like conjoined twins, I think really making the point that this act of decoupling our economies would essentially be like ripping apart conjoined twins, uh, implying the catastrophic consequences that would occur as a result for both our, both of these countries uh, and the world. Uh, so Bobby, what would your approach be uh, with the United States relationship with China? Do you believe that it's actually possible to have a peaceful coexistence or even a win-win relationship with China? Or do you believe that it is a zero-sum game where in order for the United States to win, uh, that China must lose? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question, Tulsi. And my, um, you know, my approach to that would be, um, yeah, let's recognize the reality that, that China is, is a very ambitious nation and that it does want to compete for us for influence in the world. But the reality is it does not want to compete with us militarily. It does not want to have a war with the United States. And China still has, you know, is still a very poor country compared to us. They have a, uh, the, the, um, the uh, Chinese have per capita about one third the income of the United States. They want to have better lives for their citizens, and you know they want to compete with us in places all around the world. I think we ought to be competing with them. I think we ought to be competing with the with them on an economic platform, not a military one. 
And I, and I feel very, I'm not scared of the Chinese. I'm not frightened that American ingenuity is going to fall behind the Chinese. I think it will be that kind of competition is a competition that will be good for the whole world. And it's a competition that is a collaborative piece, a collaborative world rather than a competitive world, a kind of collaborative competition, if you will. And, you know, the Chinese do not want to have a war with us. We have we spend more on our military. We're now spending one point three trillion a year on military, including veterans benefits, which you can't cut back. But, you know, we were told after the Cold War ended that we were going to get a peace dividend dividend and we were going to cut our military budget back to two hundred billion a year. Instead, we've got it at one point three billion a year if you include, you know, veterans benefits and national security. And uh, and we never got that peace dividend. So we now spend more on our military than the top 10 next nations in the world. We spend three times, we have three times the military budget of the Chinese. The Chinese can, we have five times the nuclear weapons of the Chinese. The Chinese cannot and do not want to compete with us militarily. The Chinese have about one and a half military bases in the world. We have 800. So it's it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy that says, oh, the Chinese are, you know, are, want to be our enemy and have a military competition. They don't. What we should be doing is de-escalating the military pressure on China. We should be talking to China, for God's sake. We haven't had a meeting with China in five years. We know what our objectives are. We want to rebuild our industrial base in the United States. We don't want the Chinese to take that from us. And any negotiations with the Chinese should not be about military swaggering. It should be about how do we have an economic relationship with you that is going to benefit all parties the way that every good economic relationship does. And, and here's what our objective is in the next round of negotiations is we want to re rebuild our industrial base here in the United States, and any agreement that we make, any transaction that we make with the Chinese, that should be foremost in our minds. How do we do that? But I'm not, you know, the Chinese have been doing a lot better than us because they've been, uh, they've been projecting economic power abroad and that the world likes that. We think the world is on our side, but it isn't. All we've got, the only people who are supporting this, you know, this pugnacious bellicose uh, relationship with China are, are uh, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Korea, Japan, Britain, Canada, and the United States. And we're, we're pretty much alone in the world. The rest of the world is looking at us and saying, what the heck are you doing? Why are you trying to create a war with China? Why are you fighting them over over why are you making Taiwan a military issue? Let's let that Taiwan and China work out that issue on their own and back off militarily and 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 try to have a they want was they don't want war. They want peace and they want prosperity and that cannot happen where there's a war. So let's have, you know, let's de-escalate the war talk. Let's compete economically and let's talk to them and figure out a way that you know we kind of a smart negotiation where we do better because of China rather than, you know, than giving away the store and exporting jobs, which all the other treaties have done. 
Instead, let's figure out how to have an economic relation, a financial relationship with them that rebuilds the American industrial base. Thank you, Bobby. Uh, you know, this this is um, such an obviously this this issue and the broader issue of foreign policy is is central to um, any any presidential race. And it's unfortunate that traditionally, as we've seen, uh, these issues are very rarely given the kind of attention they deserve. And and yet again, this is exactly why there should be presidential primary debates um, for the sake of the American people to have a clear choice, a clear informed choice on, on who they would like to see as our president and commander in chief. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your insight. And uh, thank you, Elon and David, for hosting this important conversation. And, and Tulsi, you know, we haven't had, we haven't had a serious economic a meeting, even a political meeting with the Chinese since 2015, seven years. You know, the, the CIA director, Bill Burns, recently went over there to meet with the Chinese, but that's not the kind of meeting. We, we need to have a real political and economic discussion with them, and that is frank, and that, you know, that let where everybody puts their cards on the table and to see if there's ways that we can work with each other peacefully and keep the world at peace. Why in the world would we go, and, and this is on, you know, this is on President Biden. You know, President Biden has forbidden his State Department, which are run by neocons, has forbidden any kind of talks or outreach to the Chinese. That is outrageous. You know, it is exactly the opposite of what Dwight Eisenhower was trying to do, you know, to find the road to peace with the Russians, which was disrupted by the, you know, the CIA's misbegotten U-2 flights. And then my uncle tried to do the same thing. Let's have peace with with the with Russia. Let's have peace with China, and let's all enjoy the prosperity of healthy economic competition. Well said, well said, Bobby. Thank you. Um, actually, something that um, is, is worth uh, noting is that on my recent trip trip to China, I uh, with the senior leadership there, I. I um, we had, I think, some very productive discussions on uh, artificial intelligence risks uh, and the, the the need for some oversight or regulation. Um, and um, uh, my understanding uh, from those conversations is that uh, China uh, will be uh, initiating uh, AI regulation uh, in, in China. So that that was uh, the, the, those those were very promising. Uh, discussions, um, and uh, you know, I, I pointed out that if uh, you know, if, if, if there is a digital superintelligence that is overwhelmingly powerful developed uh, in China, the it, it it is actually a risk to um, the, the the sovereignty of the Chinese government, um, and uh, I, I think they took that uh, concern to heart. Yeah, I mean, I love you you saying that because it. It makes us understand that no matter how you feel about China, if we are not able to negotiate with with our adversaries on issues like that, there are now existential threats. And it's not just AI, it's these bioweapons development where you know we have these labs now all over the world in Ukraine, et cetera, that are developing all kinds of hideous bioweapons, and including, you know, ethnic bioweapons that kill people from certain races, et cetera, that are designed to do that, and they already have them. 
and um, and and they're ready to escape. And you know, every country in the world has wanted to ban bioweapons. We we initiated Richard Nixon signed the bioweapons treaty in 1973, got all the countries in the world to agree to to stop developing them. But we, the CIA, continue to secretly develop them. And then after 2001, we passed the Patriot Act and we relaunched the bioweapons arms race. So now every country in the world, or many, many countries are now developing them. We should shut the whole thing down. You know, COVID was clearly a bioweapons problem. We, and you saw what that did to us. What if it was a real disease, a disease that had a 50% mortality, like dengue fever, Ebola, or or, you know, one of these other really deadly fires. They've got those in the labs too. What if that was the one that escaped? Let's shut it down around the world. Let's have a real shutdown of all bioweapons development and verification of that. And then let's sit down with the other people from Iran, from, from, uh, from Israel, from Russia and China and talk about AI, okay, and make sure that one country does not develop a weapon that is going to kill all the rest of us. We need to have, you can't just have one country regulating this. China alone cannot be regulating the development of digital superintelligence. You need the United States and China. All of us need to be participating. All of us need to be able to police the research that's happening in other countries. And we need to have transparency and protection. Otherwise, we are headed down the road to a very grim dystopian future for all of humanity. We're, we are beyond the point where we cannot, where we can afford the luxury of not negotiating about these things with the other powers in the planet. And, you know, we need a president who is aware of these threats to humanity and sees himself as the guardian of all of humanity and is thinking about this 24 hours a day. How do we avert this kind of future, a bioweapons extinction or an AI extinction? It, it's beyond, we, we cannot afford not to negotiate about this stuff anymore. And how or, or, or allow all these agencies, the CIA is developing this stuff too. And we have no idea they are not friendly to the American, you know, the American system. You know, I talked to Mike Pompeo the other day, and he said that he said what well, he said when he was at the agency, he was very candid and, and uh, you know really smart about the, the agency. And he said he said when he was there, he did not do a good job of dismantling of you know of of dismantling agency capture at the CIA. And he said that. He said, if you take the upper echelon at that agency, it's made up almost entirely of people who do not believe in the institutions of the United States and democracy. And, you know, so and I think that's absolutely true from everything I know. And I know a lot about that agency. And we've got it. You know, we have got to get off a war footing which gives these institutions the excuse to be super secret and non-transparent and pretend we're at a, you know, in a, and, and put us in a security state where they can develop all these crazy technologies in secret that are going to kill us all. It's, it's crazy. It is Bobby. And that, that really gets to, to your central point about diplomacy and Elon 
you know, your example of, of what can come about when we're, we're just really willing to have a conversation. The President of the United States should be trusted by the American people to put the well-being and interests of the American people at the forefront of the decisions that, that he or she makes. Uh, there are common uh, threats and concerns that exist with people around the world. We don't live in vacuums. And while we may have differences with other countries, things like AI, things like the threat of nuclear war, things like protecting our environment so that we as humans on this planet have clean air to breathe and, and clean water to drink and that we can grow food uh, to survive. Uh, you mentioned the bioweapons. There are so many different challenges that that uh, we must address together. And we need a leader who recognizes that and puts those interests in the well-being of the people ahead of the whole cabal of special interests that, that you've talked about. All right, thank you, Tulsi. But by the way, um, Bobby, I think probably the most surreal moment of the entire Ukraine war so far has been when Victoria Newland was testifying before Congress and admitted that there was a secret network of biolabs in Ukraine who contained materials that were so potentially dangerous that she was worried about them falling into Russian hands. Yeah, and um, after, just to your yeah, after the media had been uh, characterizing that uh, that fact as disinformation as Russian disinformation for weeks, and then and then and punishing those of us who were saying, yeah, this is what's happening. And then Victoria Newland gets in front of Congress and gets a, you know, uh, a, a, a free question from Marco Rubio and actually is under oath and answers it honestly and says, yeah, we got bioweapons labs there and we're really scared the Russians are going to get, get in there and get our stuff. It was so weird because why in the world would we have biolabs there? It's just so, so strange. The, the media continued to pile on, by the way, even after she testified and answered Marco Rubio's question. Honestly, I, I cited her quote in uh, some statements I made agreeing with you, Bob. Tulsi, we lose. Did we lose Tulsi? Sorry. Oh, there we go. Uh, especially in a time of war where they would be vulnerable to um, uh, whatever pathogens might exist in those biolabs being released and causing threat to the world. Uh, Ukraine has blacklisted me from visiting their country ever again. And I was, uh, posts that I put on social media sites were banned or shadow banned because of this claim of misinformation and disinformation. Uh, news outlets across the country uh, called, you know, criticized me of spreading misinformation, disinformation, even when I cited the DOD website that stated this uh, as as fact. Uh, it, I think it just shows um, even when they speak the truth, they're apparently uh, afraid of the truth and, and want to be able to continue what they're doing, no matter the risk. Does There's Ukraine a have a free press, out of curiosity? No way. No, no, no. They, oh, okay. They, just wanted to confirm that. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you. Okay. Well, there, there was an article just today in Semaphore, of all places, talking about how media has to be licensed by the government there and basically gets shut down. Well, that's exactly right. And then separately, talk about embarrassing revelations. The New York Times today 
has a story about how pesky Nazi insignias keep turning up on the uniforms of, um, you know, Ukrainian army members, and then they have to keep censoring photos so that these things don't appear in the press. Uh, of course, the New York Times says that the biggest problem with this is not that advanced Western weapons may be finding their hands into, you know, the hands of, of neo-Nazis, but rather that this will play into Russian propaganda. Um, but regardless of what it is, again, it's one of these embarrassing data points that show that, you know, we're constantly being fed information about this war. And then these things, you know, pop up and you realize that, um, you know, they may not be telling us everything. Uh, I mean, we, we are, we, we've been propagandized with these comic book depictions that are now formulaic, you know, that there's a bad guy, he did a bad thing, it was unprovoked, and the United States needs to go in and fix this situation by the people he's victimizing. And, you know, it's such a good testimony to the American people that, you know, that they, they that they're willing to make those sacrifices I mean, in some cases of our children, of our of our fortune to go in and help other countries. But the problem is we're being victimized too by our own agencies, which are, you know, which are leaving out the contextual information, which are leaving out the nuance, which are leaving out the entire history in this case of U.S. provocations, which brought us into, which brought us and and also uh, brought Ukraine into a war that is not helping Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine has now lost probably 350,000 kids, and they are in much worse position than when they began, when they, you know, in, in February 14, 2014. They, we, in 2019, they could have signed the Minsk Accords and kept Donbass and had no, nobody killed. And they're never gonna, and they're never gonna get back to that place again. And as you guys understand, the Russians are not going to win this war. They cannot afford to win this war. This war is existential for Russia, and it be it would be like us losing a war to Mexico. You mean Ukraine? You mean you, you mean Ukraine can't? Ukraine, I'm sorry, Ukraine. Yeah, I'm sorry, Ukraine cannot win this war. And uh, you know they're now. It's unclear what the ratio, the death ratio is, but there, there's credible information that they are suffering deaths that are seven deaths for every one Russian killed. And we are we have turned this country into this, you know, to a slaughterhouse of 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 the flower of Ukrainian youth to benefit the, the geopolitical ambitions of these, you know, of the US neocons who want to exhaust the Russian army and Exercise regime change over Vladimir Putin, and uh, and we and Ukraine is a victim in this war. It's a proxy war. It's a victim of Russia. Yes, it's it was an illegal invasion and a brutal invasion that could have been avoided by Vladimir Putin. But they're equally, almost equally, at least, a victim of U.S. policies and uh, you know the ambitions of the the aspirations of the neocons who wanted to get into this war no matter what. I think the war was easily avoidable if we had been willing to use diplomacy and basically give a written guarantee to the Russians that Ukraine would not become part of NATO. That is what they were demanding in December of 2021 in a written ultimatum to 
to the White House. It's what they were explicitly with our Secretary of State in January of 2022. And those negotiations ended where we said we wouldn't close NATO's door. And then, like you said, the other thing we didn't do was give support to the Minsk agreements, which would have provided some limited autonomy to the ethnic Russians in the Donbass, and that would have solved that that sort of civil war that was going on there. If we had just done those two things, I think there's a really good chance that this war never would have occurred. And you know, a lot of people say, well, you can't know that. But the point is, we tried. We never tried taking NATO off the table. We never tried giving our support to the Minsk agreements. Yeah, and there's a big question because Zelensky ran in 2019 on a peace platform. And I've pointed out before that, you know, he was a he's a comedian and an actor, which I'm not saying in a disparaging way because my wife is also both of those things. But he, I say that because he had no involvement in politics. And yet he won in this huge landslide with 70% of the vote because he was running on a peace platform with the promise that he would sign the Minsk Accords and settle this. And the Minsk Accords did the same thing that Ultimatum did, which is they said NATO will forever keep out of Ukraine and that, uh, and that uh, we that they would that that Donbass would be made an autonomous region within the Ukraine that was still governed by the Ukraine, but would be able to retain its own language and culture and be able to protect its citizens against a violent aggression and deadly aggression from uh, forces like the Azov Battalion and you know and, and other hostile forces within the Ukrainian government. And they and by the way. The Ukraine, the Dumbass, voted 90 to 10 to leave the Ukraine and join Russia, join the Russian Federation, 90 to 10. And the Russian Vladimir Putin said, no, we don't want you. We want Ukraine to stay a complete country. And uh, and that was, and then, you know, they, they agreed, Russia agreed, France agreed, Germany agreed on the Minsk Accords which was that a reasonable settlement, keep you keep NATO out of the Ukraine. And why, you know, my uncle, President Kennedy used to always say, if you wanna have, the only way to have peace is if you put your, yourself into the shoes of your adversary. And he gave this very famous speech on July or June 10th, five days now, it'll be the 60th anniversary of American University, his most important speech, which was, um, which turned the country around on the atmospheric test ban treaty. It was the first test ban treaty. It was the first treaty of the nuclear age. It was the first treaty to ban certain use of nuclear weapons. He and Russia, he and uh, Khrushchev agreed on it privately without involving the State Department. The State Department opposed it. The military opposed it. Congress and the Senate opposed it. But the American people ended up supporting it after he gave this speech and then did a national tour. But in that speech was a fascinating speech because he was explaining for the first time to the American people the role and the suffering that Russia had endured during World War II. Because I grew up in a generation where we were told that America had won the war against the Nazis. And, you know, we were watching shows like Combat with Vic Morrow every week on TV and that showed how Americans had been the victor and, you know, and without America, uh, uh, the, uh, the world would have been lost. My uncle was telling the American people, that's not true. The people who beat Hitler 
with the Russians and they made a sacrifice that is unimaginable to anybody else in the world. The, the, Hitler invaded Russia through the Ukraine and then killed one out of every seven Russians and leveled the nation, one third of the nation. My uncle went during that speech, he said, imagine if all of the American continent, the continental United States was reduced to rubble between the East Coast and Chicago. That's what happened to Russia. You've got to understand that if we're going to have peace with this country. And, you know, we need to understand that today. We need to put ourselves in the shoes. By the way, it's not just Putin. The Russian, the, the Russian leadership back in the 90s said, you know, in 1992, they, we made, they made an agreement. They said, we will pull our troops, our 400,000 troops out of East Germany, and we will turn East Germany over to a hostile army, the NATO army. And the concession that we want from you for that is that you will not move NATO to the east. And President Bush famously told them, we will not move NATO one inch to the east. Then the, the leader of the neocons, Zbigniew Brzezinski, the grandfather of all the neocons in 1997, laid out a plan for, take, for moving NATO into every one of the former Russian satellite states. And, uh, and at that time, George Cannon, who was the, the, the most important diplomat in American history, he was the architect of the Cold War containment policy. He was, he was a deity in terms of American statesmanship and diplomacy. He said that if you move NATO to the east as your plans, the neocons are then planning, it will be a calamity that will end in forcing the Russians to, to violence because you are intruding on their national security. Bill Perry, who at that time was the Secretary of Defense under Bill Clinton, threatened to resign because he said, this is a formula for war with Russia. And put, this is long before Putin came in. Bill Burns, who was the Russia, the U.S. ambassador in Moscow at that time, said the same thing. He said, this is a is a formula that is going to force the Russians into war. Bill Burns, incidentally, is now the head of the CIA. So these were the most important diplomats who were saying, if you move, if you move NATO to the east, you're going to force the Russians into war. And we moved it to every country except one, Ukraine. And then we said, and that was the one where Russia said it is a red line. Bill Burns, in fact, wrote a, a, a note, a, a, a memo from Moscow to the State Department saying, yet means yet. And he said, if you move it into the Ukraine, they are going to go to war. They're not, it is a red line that you cannot cross. And yet we just, they, the Nyak. God, you know, they did as much as they could up through the Bush administration, and they were in exile. And they came back in Trump, and they and what else did they do in Trump? They got they got rid of two nuclear treaties. So we we walked away from two treaties, the intermediate nuclear weapons treaties, that banned intermediate nuclear weapons stationed anywhere near Russia. And we we unilaterally walked away from that, and then we installed the Aegis missile systems in Romania and Poland that were nuclear capable, that can fire Tomahawk missiles and get to Russia in a few minutes and decapitate the entire leadership. The Russians said, okay, you got that. 
we're putting up with it, but we're not going to put up with that in Ukraine because Ukraine is 400 miles from Russia. You'll be able to decap our leadership, decapitate our leadership in seconds. And that will that is likely to destabilize the entire region and lead to a preemptive strike. And and yet we did it anyway. And it, it's just it's dumbfounding what we did. You know, the blunder, this is like sleepwalking into World War One. This is exactly what happened, you know, in World War One, where you had these great powers acting like idiots and sleepwalking into this, you know, war that accomplished nothing. And now we're right on that. Now we have nuclear weapons and we're, we're going up. We're picking a fight with a country that has a thousand more nuclear weapons than we do. It's just insane. Elon, did you want to, you want to comment there? Um, I just well, saw you, you went off mute. Uh, sorry. Just, um, I mean, I, I share a lot of these concerns, um, I, and uh, I mean, if it, so I think so, certainly if if if, he's, if there's not some some kind of peace or ceasefire that is uh, figured out soon, I, I I agree that we're we're essentially sending the flower of the Ukrainian youth and Russian youth. Uh, I think very very few of those people actually want to be there uh, to die uh, in the trenches. Um, and I think it's uh, morally rep reprehensible if, if, if you know if, if diplomats are having uh, you know fine dinners um, while while all these kids are dying in the trenches. Um, it's just crazy. Um, yeah. Um, I, 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 if I, if I may ask uh, on 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 the energy subject. Um, what what are your views on on nuclear power? Well, my, I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to get in a fight with Michael Schellenberg here because he, <laughs> you know, I have been disputing this for years. But what I've always said, um, Elon, is that on nuclear power, I'm all for nuclear power. If you can make it safe and you can make it economical. And right now, it's just so far from being either. And, and it's not me saying it's unsafe. It's the insurance industry. The insurance industry regards this this uh, nuclear power is so unsafe that they will not give them an insurance policy. And, you know, we've seen their record. The record is horrific. You know, what's happened at Fukushima, where they're, you know, now there's there's probably a, a, a square mile of these tanks that they're, they put water in every day because it's contaminated water. They're trying to keep it out of the Pacific, but there's no way to ever stop it. So they're building these huge, huge tanks, and there's and you can look on the internet. They go all the way to the horizon. You know, we've watched what happened in Chernobyl, etc. But putting aside the past performance of this industry, which has been cataclysmic, you just you know if if the if they if suddenly they get a technology that makes them safe and get an insurance policy so that we don't have to worry about it right now. You know, they've gone to Congress, they can't get insurance. So they've gone to Congress and uh, in a sleazy legislative maneuver in the middle of the night, passed the Price-Anderson Act, which gives them, which absolves them from liability for, it gives them immunity from liability. So they're just like the vaccine industry. There's no incentive for them to behave because they don't have to pay the cost. The, the homeowners pay the cost. 
my insurance policy in my home in Mount Kisco had a provision in it that said this does not insure you against radiation from a nuclear accident at, at uh, Indian Point. It was my, so they shifted the burden to me and, and industry shouldn't be allowed to do that. And then secondly, it's so catastrophically expensive. The lab, to build a solar plant cost a billion dollars a gigawatt. A wind plant costs 1.1, 1.2. A, a coal plant costs about 3.6 billion a gigawatt. The last nuclear power plant built costs 14 billion a gigawatt. So, and then you have to pay for the, you know, the mining of the uranium, you have to pay for the technicians, you have to pay for the outages, you have to pay for the, for the storage of the waste for the next 30,000 years, which is five times the length of recorded human history. And, there, and no utility in the world will build a nuclear power plant unless it's fully subsidized by the public. So, it, you know, I believe in free market capitalism. You, we could make energy by burning prime rib if we wanted to. But, you know, why don't we take the cheapest way to make energy, which is, you know, which is going to be some alternative that is not nuclear. If you, if you can make nuclear competitive, I'm for it. But I am I am a free market absolutist. And I believe that we should take the cheapest form of energy, that you, we should have no subsidies, no externalities, and all the companies should have to internalize their costs the same way that they internalize their profits. And that means the cost of pollution. You know, you, you can't have a company that can put acid rain, a coal company, acidifying every lake in the Appalachians and, in the, you know, from Georgia to northern Quebec, putting mercury in all of our every freshwater fish in America, acidifying the ocean, chopping down all the mountains. They need to pay those costs to the American public. The loss of those resources have to be paid for. And if they did that, nobody would buy coal because it, it, it's, it's supposed to be cheap. But it's the most cataclysmic, cataclysmically expensive form of energy that's probably ever been denied, except for nuke, which is the most expensive way to boil a pot of water that anybody has ever imagined. So I just I believe in markets, free market capitalism, and uh, that ought to apply to the energy industry. And at this point, nuke just can't compete. All right, guys. We have a, a just a quick time check here. I think we only got Bobby for another 15 minutes. We've been going for about two hours. So I want to make sure we get in some questions from the crowd. And uh, actually, David, I just want to just quickly respond to that, if I may, and, sure. and then for sure. Um, so I, I certainly agree uh, that um, you know that solar power and wind um, are great. I'm a huge supporter of uh, solar and wind, um, and uh, I, I also agree that that uh, the the uh, the costs of, of uh, coal power plants are underestimated. Um, they're, they're actually, if you, if you add, add up the deaths from coal mining um, and uh, the sort of uh, the effects on um, people's lungs uh, who live near the coal plants, it's pretty bad. Uh, it, it's actually way worse than nuclear. Um, so, but I I I, I do want to sort of voice my opinion that that. It, in my opinion, actually, nuclear is very safe. If you look at the actual, um, uh, you know, deaths from nuclear power, it, it is they're, they're minuscule compared to uh, so, certainly any uh, fossil fuel uh, power generation. That they're they're minuscule. The, the, the fear of nuclear is very high, um, and I think the uh, the concern, uh, the, the, you know, the, 
not clear to me why, why the uh, insurance companies charge so much. Um, uh, but the, but it you know I, I think that uh, that um, modern nuclear plants are extremely uh, safe. Um, and and I, I I would actually uh, although this does go against a lot of people's views, um, I actually am a believer in in a, a nuclear fission. Um, so I just want to state that for the record, and we can move on to something else. All right, sounds good. Um, we only have a few more minutes, so there's so much more stuff to get to. Um, Bobby, you mentioned that your wife uh, is uh, an actor and comedian like Mr. Zelinsky. Um, uh, and actually, we were able to, I know Cheryl in the room, so we, we brought her on stage. Um, Cheryl, <laughs> welcome. And I, I guess I'll ask you a question, which is, uh, well, how, how do you feel about Bobby running for president? And I'm also curious about what all of your friends in Hollywood think about his candidacy. <laughs> Can you guys hear me okay? Honey, I didn't know you were going to do this. Yeah. Oh, no, I didn't either. <laughs> I was just sitting here minding my own beeswax, listening and enjoying the conversation. And, um, oh, what? I know I forgot the question. How do I feel about it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and, how do, and how do your Hollywood friends feel about it? Put you on the spot. Well, by the way, I love that they're called my Hollywood friends. <laughs> they would be like, I'm, I'm sure there's not one friend of mine that considers themselves a Hollywood friend. But, well, the, first of all, um, yes, it took a little while to get used to the idea of Bobby running. And, you know, I... I, I took some time with it. Bobby and I talked about it a lot and, um, and decided, yes, this is what needs to happen. And honestly, it's been really interesting and at times exciting. Um, it's, it's really fun for me to witness Bobby in his element, you know, I really feel confident that this is what he is meant to do. So he he is just, I just see him in this light um, that's shining on him at this moment. And it's really, really exciting to watch. So um, I know at the same time, I know there will be challenges that I, you know, hope I'm, I know I'll be strong enough to face, <laughs> but I, so I know there'll be challenges, um, that, that we'll have to face and, you know, we'll have, we'll, we'll get through them. Yeah. Cheryl, um, I told, Cheryl told me when she finally, you know, decided, okay, we'll go along with this. She said, she, Cheryl, before she was an actor and even while she was an early actor, she made her living uh, bartending. And she said that she was going to go to the Bahamas and invent a new kind of margarita that had Xanax in it. And that was going to be her solution. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a very practical person. <laughs> All right. Well, th thanks for uh, thanks for being a good sport. Uh, Cheryl, I, I saw you in the crowd. I couldn't resist uh, pulling you up here. So appreciate well, that. It's nice to um, it's it's nice to be acknowledged, and uh, th and thank you uh, thank you guys Elon and and David for 
for posting and doing this and I'll, I'll, I'll slip back into the background now. All right. Sounds good. All right. Let me pull in uh, ball um, I, and we'll hear from Kelly Slater. And there's a couple of questions from the crowd I want to take as well, but, but Balji, you want to, you want to ask a question? Sure. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Mr. Kennedy, uh, I've been impressed with your sophistication on a number of issues related to peace, civil liberties, CBC's Bitcoin. Uh, I really only have one question. It relates to our financial system. The short version of it is, will you be able to dig into the devaluation of treasuries and other government bonds by the Fed? As a little bit of background, the Fed has turned treasuries into new toxic waste. A series of ill-considered moves has turned the so-called safest asset in the world into the riskiest asset in the world and set the stage for a second financial crisis. Stanford estimates the bond losses to be in the trillions. Dalio says they extend far beyond banks to pension funds, insurance companies, and other institutions. Nuriel Rabini says most banks are technically near insolvency and hundreds are already fully insolvent. The Guardian says banks' unrealized loss on bond portfolios are sufficiently large as to represent systemic risk. And Euromoney says U.S. Treasury bonds no longer meet the standards for high-quality liquid assets. Right now, this bond crisis is being downplayed or blamed on everyone other than the Fed and Treasury. But fundamentally, Treasury sold assets in 2021 that Fed then devalued in 2022, undercutting the balance sheets of countless banks and other financial institutions. In short, Fed lied, banks died. Treasuries are the new toxic waste. The Western financial system is a whole blown its bedrock asset, and a second global financial crisis is brewing. There are no obvious paths out of this that don't involve printing a lot of money. So while I recognize it's a somewhat arcane-sounding topic, just like subprime and CDOs, unfortunately, once were, will we be able to dig into the devaluation of treasuries and other government bonds by the Fed? And that's your question? I wish you hadn't prefaced it by saying I had so much sophistication on every issue because the, my <laughs> only answer here is that, yes. would, will you please be my treasury secretary? Because I'd like you, if you got a solution, <laughs> I want to hear it. I, I, I don't have lots of solutions. Uh -huh. I can tell you what I think the problem is, um, but we can talk about it afterwards if you want. I would, and, uh, I would love that. I can that. show you all the graphs. I would love that. And I, okay, you know, I, I do... You know, I, I have a deep and long time concern about the, that has been deeply ingrained in my family for generations about um, just the out of control nature of the Fed and, you know, what, and the impact of the Fed, not only on the global money supply, and uh, but on democracy and on personal freedoms, et cetera. And my uncle um, tried to do something about that by at least um, recoupling the money supply to base currency, to gold and silver. And he, you know, initiated during his term gold certificates and silver certificates were, um, which would at least have some part of the money supply that was, uh, that could not be easily manipulated because it was attached to the base currency. But after his death, we went back to a full fiat currency, and that's, you know, I think that the root of all of the issues, ultimate issues that you're talking about right now. And I, you know, I do not have a high enough level of sophistication to be able to sit here and tell you that I have a simple answer to it. Uh, I've talked to a lot of people, and I've gotten a lot of different answers about how do you address it, but nobody claims that there is a panacea. Um, but, you know, we're, we're about to hit a wall. And you know we're already watching people lose faith in our our in our credit and our currency and and you know and and the U.S. dollar is now 
uh, being threatened with losing its status as the world's reserve currency. Brazil has already signaled that it's moving away to the China, you know, uh, adopting Chinese currency, Saudi Arabia, Argentina, Pakistan, many, many other countries are. Um, and that will be uh, that will be a cataclysm for the United States that will make the Great Depression look like a cakewalk. And so I, I know I understand the emergency nature of, of trying to figure out a way that can, um, you know, to deal with this crisis. And I, I would love to talk to you about it if, if you have ideas and anybody who thinks that they can help solve this problem. All right. Sounds good. I, we could spend the whole show just talking about these issues. Let's, we only have a few minutes left, so I want to I want to move on. Thanks, Balaji, and yeah, happy to connect you guys afterwards so you can talk some more about it. Uh, Bobby, a question from the crowd. We, we got a lot of questions on the issue of gun control. I think it's one of the biggest topics in the feed. Um, here's one of them from uh, a user, uh, Real Pat King. He says, I need to know your detailed stance and policy on the Second Amendment before you get my vote. That's likely the only thing holding me back from voting for you. What do you say to him and the other people on the issue of gun control? Um, my position on the gun control is I'm not going to take away anybody's guns. I'm, you know, I'm, um, I'm a constitutional absolutist, and the, uh, so, you know, we can argue about whether the Second Amendment was intended to protect guns, but that argument is now been settled by the Supreme Court and. Uh, and it has a very, and the Supreme Court, you know, the Antonia, Antonine Scalia's decision is a very expansive interpretation of the right to own a gun. But more importantly, I don't, you know, anybody who tells you that by, with incremental changes or incremental laws in regulating guns, and by the way, I want to say this, I have two members of my family that were killed in gun violence. So, you know, I take, I understand the heartbreak that this is causing to so many Americans. It's touched my family directly. And I, I, I know as president that you are going to expect me and I'm going to do everything I can to reduce gun violence in this country. I think one of the tools that has been taken out of my hands is, uh, is taking away people's guns. I don't think it's the right thing right now because the, it, it will just polarize our country. I've lived in rural areas of this country. I know how integrated gun culture is in those areas and how important it is to them from a, in the way they view the constitution. I also know we're living in a time when the constitution has been un, under attack, all the other amendments in an unprecedented way and how that would be seen by people who believe strongly in the, in the Second Amendment as part of a systematic assault on our Bill of Rights. And I don't want to get into that debate. I want to stop the school shootings. And if it comes down to protecting the schools the way that we protect airlines, I will do that. I do not want any more children dying in our schools. I also am going to look very closely at the role of psychiatric drugs in these events. And there are no good studies right now that, uh, that should have been done years ago on this issue because there's a tremendous uh, uh, circumstantial evidence that those like SSRIs and benzos and other drugs are doing this. There's something happening in our, in our country right now 
that is not happening anywhere else in the world and has never happened in human history. And you have to look at some of the, almost all of these drugs. If you look at their manufacturer's inserts, they include a side effect of homicidal and suicidal behavior. And prior to the, the introduction of Prozac, we had almost no, uh, none of these events in our country, and we've never seen them in his, human history, where people walk into a, a, a schoolroom of children or strangers and start shooting people. There's other nations that have as many guns per capita as we do, like Switzerland. Switzerland, the last school shooting was 21 years ago. We have one every 21 hours. The one thing that we have that's different than anybody in the world is the amount of psychiatric drugs our children are taking and and our people are taking. And we need to look at that. And NIH should have done that years ago, but they will not do it. And they'll block other people from doing it because they are because they're working not for us, but for the pharmaceutical industry. And this is their major profit center today. And so nobody wants to hear none of those. You know, the pharma does not want to hear about any problems with SSRIs, but I will do those studies immediately when I get into office and we're going to get the truth. It's something, it's something, you know, guns, the proliferation of guns, clearly a bet violence, but, but anybody who tells you that they can remove enough guns, AR-15s or whatever, by tinkering at the margins and get to the kind of the, the situation that they have in Western Europe is pulling your leg. It's not going to happen. We need to look now at other solutions. And we and the only way we're ultimately going to get gun controls in this country is through consensus. And that consensus cannot happen when we're all at each other's throats. We need to assure the public, people who feel insecure about the Constitution, that our Constitution is no longer under threat that nobody wants to come and take away their guns. And that will bring people to the table and say, okay, how do we protect our children? And, uh, and that's what I'm going to try to do as president. All right. Thank you. Let's go to Kelly Slater. Kelly, it looks like you're on a skateboard somewhere. <laughs> you have a question yeah. for Bobby? Yeah. Can you hear me guys? Yes. Yeah. All right. Great to talk to you, Bobby. How are you, sir? Very well, um, Kelly. Thank you for calling. All right, I appreciate it. I think I speak for everyone when I say it's so refreshing to hear you talk about all these topics. Um, things like reaching across the aisle. I, it was really nice to see Tulsi on here. She's a good friend. I know what she's been through when she went to Syria and spoke to the leader over there. She got completely attacked for it at home. But to your point earlier uh, regarding China, regarding Russia, other places, I mean, we need to have dialogue with these people. And um, I don't know why that's seen as such a bad thing. Um, it doesn't mean you're in agreement. It means you're just trying to solve solutions, come up with solutions. But we see that at home more and more with the media. And as you pointed out earlier, I think I think things get into what seems like dangerous ground when you start to talk about the implications of uh, uh, big pharma and other companies being in cahoots with media, then controlling the narrative, uh, trying to cancel people like yourself. There's there's some frightening topics, so I I find it really refreshing to listen to you, listen listen to the transparency that you have when speaking about all these different topics, and and I guess that leads me back to sort of my question because I see you as almost a Trojan horse for transparency and honesty, and it's really refreshing in this political environment. Um, 
and and I feel like at times so far you've been they've attempted to reduce you to small talking points in the media and and uh, I love to hear you talking about all these other things other than them focusing on your vaccine stance um, questioning medical things but as you get into all these other topics we learn so much so I just wonder how you'll change that narrative for people to to hear your your broader message and to continue to get that out because there's so many challenging things but also the way you talk about them is really really inspiring thank you so much kelly and um and thank you for your courage during you know during the pandemic you were really one of the few people at a time when athletes were being bullied all over the world um you were one of the few people who were standing up and you know you came and talked to me on my podcast when literally nobody in the world would talk to me so I uh, I won't ever forget that, and I'm you know I I'm such an admirer of yours, not only as an athlete, as one of my favorite athletes, but also as for your moral courage and for your your really gentle, sweet um, approach to the world, you know, and loving approach to the world, which is so inspiring. Um, I you know what my, I don't have a good strategy other than. I don't lead ever with vaccine stuff. I've got, you know, I've been sort of silenced on all of these issues for 18 years. And I feel like I got, you know, a lot of, <laughs> a lot I'm bursting with things that opinions that people may not want to hear. Now, I don't ever need to talk about vaccines again, but, but if somebody asks me about vaccines, I'm going to tell them the truth. And a lot of times people ask me about them and then they immediately want to shut me up because it's like turning on a fire hose. And I, you know, I, I have a lot of domain knowledge. I know a lot about the issue. And uh, and so I would, you know, what I would say also generally to the press, if you don't want to hear about vaccines from me, don't ask me about them. And, you know, you'll never have to listen to me. But if you ask me, you shouldn't be shutting me up when I answer your question. Uh, but, you know, I think I've I've actually been doing pretty well, Kelly, and being able to talk about some of these issues, you know, about the Ukraine, about the censorship, about the economy, about the destruction of the American middle class, about the, the appropriation of our foreign policy by neocons, about the appropriation of our domestic policy by Wall Street and, you know, the big corporate uh, dictators and the, the capture of our agencies by the industries they're supposed to regulate and um you know i have now it's been you know cheryl and i have been astonished by how much traction these issues are getting and it's really been you know she she said that it was exciting and that i think both of us are you know excited that people seem to be listening and really care about these issues so um hopefully that will continue and thanks for joining us kelly yeah I appreciate it. And one last thing I wanted to say is just to mention, I've seen a couple interviews where people have really wanted to challenge you, but not listen to what you say. And I find that really just an enchanting to, uh, to hear that kind of media, but you're always, you're always kind back and you give a thoughtful answer. And, and uh, I, I appreciate that because I think we all need more of that. Um, it's, a, it's a great way to, to approach any conversation with people that, especially the ones you disagree with. So thanks a lot. Thank you, Kelly. Great. Here's a question from the crowd. Um, let's see here. Uh, Tanner 
T22 asks, is your energy policy going to continue destroying our landscapes with the seas of solar panels and windmills? And TX Frenchman asks, your stance on oil and gas, drill or no drill? Well, I don't have an easy answer for either of those things. You know, I think, like I said, I think we should not have um, that that every energy uh, system, every energy generator should have to internalize its cost. And so, and there's some cases like, for example, I fought for many years offshore wind in the United States. I think offshore wind makes sense in uh, in some in the North Atlantic and some parts of Europe, but in the United States, we have great onshore wind, and um, we have the best onshore wind probably anywhere in the world of any continent except for Antarctica, and uh, and we have great economic opportunities and great places to do it where it does does minimal environmental damage. A lot of the cornfields of North Dakota, for example, uh, which are a huge economic boom for family farmers in North Dakota. And potentially if we have a grid system that can pick up that energy, could provide a lot of our energy grid. You know, I think uh, Montana, North Dakota, Texas have enough wind to provide 100% of our energy grid right now um, people are, you know, building with highly, highly subsidized wind power, wind turbines in the Atlantic, and uh, and we're seeing these big whale kills that appear to be related to it. And to me, that's intolerable, and um, it's not something that we should be doing. So I'm against it. But you know, everywhere energy, there's no single solution for energy. Every one of them is. Uh, is connected to a locality, and you have to measure the impacts on that locality of you know how much environmental damage per kilowatt hour, and that's has that those costs need to be internalized so that the public can then make a rational choice that is market based about what energy they want, and and um and so that's how I you know that's how I would feel about that. All right, thank you. Um, I'm being informed by uh, Bobby's team that we have to go. Uh, we've been going for over two hours now and the time's just flown by. So appreciate everyone who's participated, uh, everyone who is still waiting to ask a question. It, we just couldn't get to everybody, but there are gonna be other opportunities I'm confident in the future to keep doing this. Bobby's been super available on podcasts and interviews. Uh, so I'm sure you'll be hearing a lot more from him. And if you want to follow his campaign, his team is telling me that you can go to his website, which is kennedy24.com. And if you want to contribute, you can do it there. You can join a mailing list. So uh, Kennedy24 is the website. Uh, Thanks so much for participating, and we'll see you guys next time. Thank you very much, David, and thank you, Elon. And thank you guys for being here and listening to this with me today. It was interesting, to say the least. Uh, I am glad that we got to hear his stance on gun control. That was something I think a lot of people were really concerned about uh, when it came to the guns. Is he going to want to take all our guns? Is he going to pull the same old Democrat wanting to ban all guns? It sounds like he does not want to do that. A couple things with this. What did I want to say? We're going to, so obviously I'm going to be taking a break, but when, when we get into 2024, as we go into the end of 2023, 
really into 2024, you are probably going to see a lot more of this kind of thing from your political people, from the people, your, your campaign uh, people. Okay. From, from Donald Trump to, uh, Marvek Ramesway was another one to obviously RFK Jr. Even to um, the old boy from Florida. Okay. So old boy from Florida, he had announced his presidency on Twitter. I do think you are going to see a lot more of this, probably more than you're going to see CNN town halls and, and all of that jazz. I think the media portion of this is really going to fall to the wayside um, when it comes to how these politicians are going to be able to campaign. And that's going to be a huge shift for people. That's going to be a shift for, for obviously the boomers, a shift for all of us. It's going to be really different to see. I look at this as something that's going to become the norm is them doing these type of, of interviews and town halls on these different social media platforms. Um, with RFK Jr., I, I like a lot of what he says. I, I like his plan. I really do think he's more of the common sense Democrat. Um, I did not care for the long-winded explanation of the Ukraine stuff. He's a little more vested in Ukraine than I would have liked to have seen. Uh, in my opinion, that's kind of one of my my uh, small deal breakers. Like, I don't want to send any more money to Ukraine uh, when that needs to be done. Obviously, uh, he has talked about his stance on women and women's sports before. I really would have liked to have heard him elaborate a little bit more on that. Maybe he will. Maybe he won't. Um If it comes right down to it, if Trump is not the GOP pick and it it does happen to get to be DeSantis for some god awful, I will probably vote for RFK Jr. over DeSantis. Um, I I don't care for DeSantis. DeSantis makes me very nervous. Um, I'll definitely vote for him over some of these other ones too. I I just, I can't. Um, I don't know if he's got a prayer or not, he seems to be getting an awful lot of attention from a lot of people who are pretty prominent in stuff like this, uh, like Elon Musk, um, which makes me think that he might have a chance to be the DNC pick. What more to come? Um, what else? That was really, he's got to do better at this though. He, he can't, the long winded, explanations and conversations and then going back well they did this this and this back in the 40 like and i I like a good history lesson just as much anybody else but i'm hoping that as he goes forward with these type of things he can keep it a lot shorter and a lot more to the point i feel like he tends to go on tangents and i recognize that because i do it as well um (laughs) and so it's kind of a self-recognization type of thing um I, i feel like he could be really good for the DNC if he can get in. I'm, we'll see. I guess more to come on that. Uh, that's it. That's all I've got for this. I, I've got some other thoughts maybe on it, uh, maybe for another time with RFK Jr. So we're just going to kind of keep watching and, and see how it all filters out. Um, And that's it. I, I'm done now until the end of the summer. I had made a TikTok. It didn't go anywhere. I don't know why it wouldn't go anywhere. It just It's sitting at 300 views, which is crazy. Um, so I, I'm done for the summer. I am going to take the time off and be with my kids, um, and, and do the, the mom stuff. We're going to go to the pool. We're going to be camping an awful lot. We're going to be gone an awful lot. Uh, and the heart thing, and I'm going to just take some time off. We're looking to be done uh, to take this hiatus probably until August when things really start to pick up. I want to come back 
ready to go and organized and, and fresh, uh, and want to be able to take on 2024 with that kind of mentality. And I, I need a little bit of a break to do that in order to kind of recenter myself. And so I'm going to take some time off. I'd already talked to Sonny about this. I've already talked to Shannon. Uh, we're going to be, there won't be any shows, uh, until probably August timeframe. I am still going to stream stuff. So like these kind of things, we've got the Durham congressional hearing that's coming up. We're going to stream that. Uh, if anything else like this happens, we will stream it. I'll, I'll put a TikTok out about it. Uh, I'll put it on Twitter. I'll put it on Instagram. I'll stream this kind of stuff. Cause it is kind of, I'm going to listen anyway. And so if I'm going to listen to it anyway, you guys might as well be here. We might as well talk about it. Um, and then we're going to go from there. We are still going to do the group a couple. We are still going to do the group. I am going to take this time off too to kind of reorganize what that's going to look like. I'm going to work a little bit more with Sonia um, and and get that whole thing nailed down. It's just uh, there were some things that happened to on a personal level that I, I'm just going to step back and and really take this time to to spend this time with my kids. They're going to be older next year and they're going to be, they're not going to want to hang with mom so much uh, next year. So more to come on that. And with that, you guys, I will see you on all of the platforms. Again, we're on Instagram. We are on um, Twitter. We're on TikTok, obviously. I'm still going to post things to YouTube too. So if you're there, I'll post my shorts there. Uh, I'm still going to keep everybody updated. It's just the long form shows are going to take a hiatus for a little while. They do grow up very, very fast. Um, Very, very fast. So I will see you guys probably for the Durham report if nothing else comes up and, and that's it. That's all I got. You guys, I love your faces. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your support. Thank you for everything. And I will see you a little bit later. Have a good rest of your day, you guys. Back off, I'll take you on. Head strong, you take on anyone. I know that you are wrong. You're head strong. You're head strong.